Thank you very much, Mark. Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I would like to thank Tony Bond and Josephine Tuma and all at the Gallery of New South Wales for inviting me to participate in this symposium. I would also like to congratulate Tony and Makushla on this excellent Francis Bacon exhibition, which I had the pleasure of visiting for the first time yesterday. Um, it was marvelous to, so to speak, say hello to old friends, as well as to see for the first time paintings I had only known through reproductions. The five decades allows, I think, a thoughtful and new understanding of Bacon's position within the history of painting, appreciate his growing technical confidence as he evolved as an artist, as well as a new appreciation of his position within, within the national avant-garde of the 20th century. My paper, as Mark said, comes out of new research into our Bacon archive at the Hugh Lane. Over 500 books were discovered in Francis Bacon's studio and another 700 plus in his kitchen, his bedroom, as well as in storage in Dale's Farm, a property he owned in Suffolk and never went to very much, never liked the countryside. The books in the studio were catalogued and inputted onto the digital database at the same time as the rest of the items between 1998 and 2001, while the remainder of the, uh, Bacon's library, Bacon's books, was catalogued by our research fellow, Dr. Monica Keska, between 2010 and 12. And this result, as Marcus said, that this research has resulted in a symposium, Bacon's Books, which was held in Trinity College at Dublin in October last year. And our library, Bacon's Books, is now available on our website, uh, The Hugh Lane. Food is never as simple as one thinks. It is much more dangerous, seducing completely, as Auguste Escoffier, the famous chef, said. In 1997, I first visited Seven Rees Mews, South Kensington, London, Francis Bacon's home and studio for over 30 years. His small, chaotic studio, his small, chaotic studio measuring six by four meters was mesmerizing. I was, I was absolutely captivated, pulsating with heaps of detritus, surrounded by vivid paint-spattered walls his only abstract paintings, as he called them. It honestly was look, like looking inside the artist's head. And now that the protagonist had gone, Bacon had died five years earlier, this chaotic space had taken on a personality of its own, the legacy of a great artist. And it was really the only remaining thing beyond interpretation of, of Bacon now that the artist had died. The other two rooms in the mews were neat and ordered. His living room doubled as his bedroom, with an assortment of books on the shelves at the, at the end of his bed, and a rather bizarre arrangement saw so his kitchen and bathroom sharing the same space. Now, this is an artist who, during his lifetime, uh, that beautiful triptych that Tony mentioned in a private collection in, 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 um, Switzerland, in Switzerland, was the highest, pay, highest price paid for a living artist ever as known as 1974-2-74. And so, but he still remained in this bizarre arrangement. And as you can see, that the bath is opposite the fridge, the hand basin is opposite the sink, uh, and the sink is beside an old, modest, old-fashioned gas cooker. On the table between the bath and the fridge, I was curious to see a pile of cookery books, including a well-used copy of Mrs. Beaton's uh, household management. Oh, um, 
And this is, sorry, this is another uh, view of the kitchen here. Well, anyway, Mrs. Beaton will come up in a minute. I'll just leave it there for a minute. Um, on the back of which Bacon had drawn a table place setting. Now, as he didn't have a circular table in the mews, it may have been referencing a lunch or a dinner he was planning in one of his regular restaurants. Food was important to Francis Bacon. The kitchen also served as an annex of his... Of his um, am I going the right way? Of his studio... And in this exhibition here in the Gallery of New South Wales, uh, there are photographs of Brett Whiteley painting Francis in his kitchen. On the wall over the sink was a formidable array of images of his paintings, some of which show works before their final state of being. As Francis' studio was small, it was difficult for the artist to keep works once finished. And as we know how difficult it is for an artist to have an empty studio, this was Bacon's solution. And he also manipulated images of, um, and this is where, of course, he manipulated images of his paintings, and this image bank was very important to him. Despite it otherwise being believed, Francis Bacon did manage to work on more than one painting at a time in his studio, as he admitted in an early uh, interview to David Sylvester. And this is borne out by the alignment of certain compositional structures in his triptychs. But when the Fulane team forensically removed the entire contents of Bacon's studio in 1988, they catalogued over 7,000 items, including medical books, as you can see here um, in the front here, uh, photographs of skin diseases, reproductions of his own work, photographs by, among others, John Deacon, Peter Beard, Michael Pergolani, uh, Peter Stark, reproductions of old master paintings, including Velasquez, you can see um, Philip the um, second back over here on the, I think there's a pointer here, isn't there? Yeah, up here. Um, uh, uh, photographs of crime, uh, Egyptology, dance, uh, photograph of, of Bacon himself. Uh, there was also handwritten notes, some of which are in this exhibition, drawings, abandoned and slashed canvases, and of course, cookery books. The, the archaeological team uh, made uh, three layers of survey drawings and elevation drawings and itemised the, um, itemized the location of the items as they removed them. This project was uncharted territory, and as I wanted the least amount of interpretation possible at this early stage of archiving, everyone, everything was given the same weight, and each item's location, as well as description and catalogue number, were recorded. In an article for the, Irish, or for the London Times, in advance of his exhibition at the Marlborough Gallery in New York in 1984, Bacon credits Mrs. Beaton as a source of inspiration for his work, along with medical books, books on birds of prey, and indeed an advertisement in the paper. And Michael Pepiat records Bacon in his living room, come bedroom. He would have piles of books on the table, maybe a catalogue of a new exhibition of Sura, or a book by a friend such as the poet Jack Dupin, or even a well-thumbed copy of Mrs. Beaton's book of household management. For Bacon, good food, its appearance, the images it conjured up, and most importantly, its colour, all played their part in his life and art. Food was in the family, so to speak. Like artists before him, including Nicolas Poussin, Little Chicken, and Eugene Boudin, Sausage, Francis Bacon's name is as synonymous with meat. 
He celebrated Forbear, the 16th century philosopher, scientist, and statesman, Sir Francis Bacon, after whom he was named, died while experimenting on the possibilities of freezing a chicken. As his renown as an artist grew, so did Bacon's reputation as a bon vivant. His love of drinking began at an early age, and alcohol uh, helped him overcome his shyness. When I was very young, you see, and I quote, I was incredibly shy, and later I thought it was ridiculous to be shy, so I tried deliberately to get over this because I think shy people are ridiculous. And when I was 30 or so, I gradually began to open myself out. When in later life, after the removal of one of his kidneys, Michael Wishart, the artist, offered his sympathy, Baking laughingly replied, well, if you had been drunk since the age of 15, you're lucky to even have one kidney. All five senses are engaged with eating food. Uh, they they, um, they uh, smell, assail the sense of smell. The, the eye appraises the appearance and the colours of the dish. The sound is engaged with the first bite, as too is taste and, and, and touch. Francis Bacon was known to have been a good, if, rel if simple, cook and recounted how his mother made relatively straightforward dishes, such as shepherd's pie and oxtail stew. He left his home, Straffan Lodge, in County Kildare when he was 16, following a row with his father over his overt homosexual behaviour. And the following year, 1927, was sent to Berlin with a friend of the family, believed to be Cecil Harcourt Smith, to be sorted out. Bacon in the last years of the Weimar Republic, with its stark contrasts of sophistication and sexual tolerance, poverty and promiscuous behaviour, was quite a revelation from the man from Ireland. Taking advantage of the hyperinflation of the period, they stayed in the luxurious Hotel Adlon, made famous by the culinary genius of Auguste Escoffier, the hotel's legendary chef, and its glamorous clientele, which included Marlene Dietrich and Charlie Chaplin. Rather than helping sort out France's homosexual inclinations, Harcourt Smith seduced the young man in one of the ducal apartments. As well as recounting these exploits later, forever the sensualist, Bacon also recalled the sumptuous room service, in particular the splendid breakfast trolley adorned by four long-necked silver swans and the glorious sensation of grasping one to pull the laden silver trolley towards the bed. Following on his stay of over two months in Berlin, Bacon then went on to spend almost two years in France, where he experienced sophisticated continental cuisine, and throughout his life he maintained an abiding affection for Mediterranean food. Francis Bacon also credits his lover, mentor and collector, Eric Hall, whom he first met in the late 20s with his appreciation of good food. He taught me the value of things, for instance, what decent food was, that I certainly didn't learn in Ireland. I don't think Bord Falch will be using that quote to bring people to Ireland. Eating and drinking play a crucial role in the art of seduction, as Bacon was well aware. Daniel Farson recounts how the first time he met Bacon in the French pub in Soho, Bacon regaled them all with his story of how that morning he had been picked up in the Westminster Bank by a colonel in the South African army. He invited Bacon to lunch in the Ritz, and then, according to Francis, the colonel wanted Bacon to travel back with him to South Africa. Playing along with them for a while, Bacon eventually declined, and apparently there was quite a scene with the colonel screaming abuse and breaking glasses. Bacon loved the fuss. 
and was theatrical in his life as well as his art. His paintings have a dramatic sensibility, set scenes played out in the public gaze, just as he played out his personal dramas on the stage of the public house and the city restaurant. He could be equally courteous and charming or drunk and obnoxious. In a letter to Francis from Michael Wishart, dated March uh, 12, 30, 1978, Wishart writes, It was good of you to write, and thanks. I can't remember what you said anymore, but it was odious and silly because you were so drunk. Marianne Faithful recalls how, when she was 23, with a needle in my arm, thin as a skeleton, I used to hang out near a pub called The French, and Francis would come out legless and see me sitting there. We would go to Wheeler's, which is a fish restaurant, and he would feed me. She goes on to say she wasn't a jolly date, but Francis continued to feed her over the next two years. When she got off the street and did Broken English, she, uh, uh, her play, Broken English, she, and, and her album, she used to uh, meet Francis in the Chelsea Arts Club for lunch or dinner. I will never forget his kindness and discretion. He found me when I didn't want to be found, but with great delicacy, he helped me. Over 40 images were found in Francis, sorry, over 40 cookbooks were found in Francis Bacon's library. Oh, and there is Mrs. Beaton. Mrs. Beaton from, uh, this is Mrs. Beaton from um, 1888, the 1888 edition. And you see here the circular um, table plan, which has uh, here um, a, a, a David, a John. Um, it's quite difficult to make out. Uh, to make out, but obviously Bacon had planned in advance um, how he was going to seat his guests. Ten of the books in um, Bacon's cookery library were by Elizabeth David, and four of them were different editions of French country cooking. That Bacon had more than one um, edition of a book is not unusual, and in fact, uh, Tony has shown you some images of Edward Mowbridge's uh, studies of the human figure in motion. Bacon had at least four copies of that book in his studio, several hundred pages from other editions, and another copy of it in his, um, in his uh, sitting room come bedroom. But as Davis, Elizabeth Davis' books were almost all without illustration, it must be assumed that her actual recipes and anecdotes were of much interest to Bacon, perhaps on their own accord, but most probably for the images they conjured up for the artist. No palettes were found in Bacon's studio. Instead, he seems to have used whatever was at hand, particularly cut-out canvases, small canvases that he destroyed. He cut out the face in the middle, and then he used them to, for the paint. Or even the walls, the paint-spattered walls, um, um, which, surrounded the, uh, which we've seen already in the studio. Um, but he used also the cover of the 1966 edition of Elizabeth Davis' French Country Cooking to mix some paint. Jane Griegson was represented by three of her cookbooks, of which charcuterie and French pork, uh, French pork cookery was found in his studio. Her illustrations of the variety of cuts of pork is somewhat reminiscent of Mrs. Beaton's book of Household Management. This is an archaeological study survey, one of the three... Uh, um, if you like, survey drawings of the actual floor of the studio, which was made by the team of archaeologists uh, commissioned by the Hugh Lane. And they show you where uh, this was in, where it was positioned in the studio. This is the area down here. This is the door into the studio. The um, 
uh, easel was somewhat around here. Usually this is sort of where he dumped things like empty Krug bottles and all of that. And down here, this is the second layer, down here was the circular mirror. So it's quite interesting to see some, where some of the images were. Um, the, there's also, um, to the left, there's also this loose leaf from another edition of Mrs. Beaton's, Mrs. Beaton's uh, cookery book. And you see here it's called, um, it's uh, Cold Joints. And it's from the 1923 edition. And this was very typical of Bacon, as I've always was already mentioned. The richly illustrated La Russe Gastronomique, given to Francis uh, by, as a Christmas gift, most probably by Peter Lacey. The inscription reads, to Francis, love from Peter, Christmas 1961. Peter was to die um, the year later. A, uh, the, a taste of Paris, traditional food, and a, tra a taste of Wales, Welsh traditional cooking by his friend Theodora Fitzgibbon. The great vintage wine book by Michael Broadbent from 1980 with its intense ruby red images for 30-year-old vintages. Italian cooking by Antonio Carlucci. And The Cookbook by Carol Caroline and Terence Conrad. About 10 pages were found to be torn out of this book, one of which was located to the west end of the studio near the mirror. If you can see it over there. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, over there. And actually, the third uh, chicken, it's called poultry, boiling fowl, was actually the image that's used in the left panel of the triptych 1981-1982. All these cookbook books give us a diversity, uh, a glimpse of the diversity of, of Bacon's cooking. The, the um, focus is on Mediterranean cooking, which confirms Bacon's affection for continental cuisine, and this was also reflected in the restaurants he favoured in London, the Italian restaurant Mario's, Wheeler's, the fish restaurant, um, and, and others, uh, Wilton's was another, and of course the Ritz. Even the French, the so-called because of its continental clientele and owner, the Belgian, Victor Berlemont, the first non-Briton to ever own a publican's licence, was one of Bacon's favourite pubs. It had a French restaurant upstairs frequented by business people, industrial magnates and collectors, essential for an artist's survival. Despite being a prodigious, prodigious drinker, one of the reasons for Francis's relative longevity was probably his love of good food, and his delight in it may have been partly due to first-hand experience of food rationing. Born in Dublin in 1909, Bacon lived through the First World War, the Easter Rising of 1916 in Dublin, the Irish War of Independence, and the Second World War. Rationing was severe during the two world wars, and while the Easter Rising was short-lived, it too had its impact on food supplies. In her cookery book, the Constance Bry cookery book, Constance Bry gives us an unusual account of food shortage during the Easter Rebellion in Dublin. Some friends of mine, incarcerated in the precincts of Dublin Castle during the 1916 rebellion in Ireland, found themselves restricted to an unrelieved diet of salmon for almost a week. What a blessing to them would have been Madame Prunier's book, giving around 30 ways of dealing with this delicious but rich fish. As it was, their close friends were prayed to avoid salmon when entertaining them for long months after. There was sort of no mention of the war. Um, Image uh, um, food was also very difficult to source during the Second World War in London. Theodore Fitzgibbon, 
who wrote the two cookbooks I mentioned earlier, a friend of Bacon's, recalls in her autobiography, With Love, a copy of which was in Bacon's studio, the severity of the rations. The rations per week consisted of one ounce of butter, four ounces of margarine, one ounce of cheese, and between one shilling and one and threepence worth of meat. One egg a week in the summer, and the winter was unpredictable. Egg powder was a substitute, and pretty ghastly milk powder was also a substitute. Vegetables and fruit were ration-free, but infrequent and seasonal. She goes on to say how difficult it was to get meat. When I remarked to the butcher that all animals seem to be born without tongues, tails, hearts, kidneys, livers, or balls, he winked at me, a great arm went under the counter, and he flung up a half-frozen oxtail. To this day, I can taste the thick gravy and see our grease-spattered lips as we chewed on the bones. Michael Wishart again, he recounts how on a visit to Bacon's studio in Cromwell Place in 1943 that Bacon cooked a dish of spaghetti with garlic and walnuts, which was to become one of his specialities. John Edwards, in conversation with me um, some years back, recalled how Francis cooked a great roast chicken. And Bacon himself gleefully boasted of adding a bottle of Chateau Petrus to his stew, which made it truly delicious. Bacon's routine of working from very early until lunchtime and spending most afternoons eating and drinking around Soho, Knightsbridge and South Kensington became legendary, and the habit may have come out of his wartime experiences. Theodore explains, if there seems to be an undue importance to being attached to the pubs, it must be explained that there were the only places in wartime London where one could entertain and be entertained cheaply and find companionship badly needed during the war. For people of our age with no solid regular work accounts behind us, it was difficult to come by even a bottle of sherry. Food was very scarce indeed, and food for the occasional dinner party had to be hunted for and often took many hours and much traipsing about. Bombs dropping in London could not so easily be heard when one was in them, the pubs, and the company lessened the apprehension. Private drinking clubs such as Muriel Belcher's famous colony room and the Mandrake were havens for Bohemian London. Muriel Belcher was a close friend of Bacon's and he was a regular in the colony room. Her girlfriend was called, uh, Jamaican was called Carmel Stewart and she was known as Melon Lips. And according to David Marion, a friend of Bacon's, said that uh, she used to steal from the till and then go gambling with Bacon in Charlie Chester's at night. But being a club, the colony room was not subject to the licensing laws which obliged pubs to close daily between 2.30 and 5.30 p.m. As such, it was a welcome respite during the dreary, bleak afternoons when the camaraderie of the pub was off limits. Images of food, and in particular of meat, occur regularly in Francis Bacon's paintings. He was fascinated by abattoirs and meat carcasses from an early age. In 1977, an article appeared in the Irish press by Doreen Maloney, a childhood friend of Bacon's who grew up near him in County Kildare. She recounts how Bacon was always drawing and he would hand me sheaves of drawings for my appraisal. He was amused when I could not readily identify the subjects. He was not overly athletic but was a keen tennis player, fast and steady, she said, and he partnered Doreen in tennis tournaments in the nearby town Nace. However, his real interest lay elsewhere. Doreen describes how one day, as they were en route to Nace to play tennis, we passed a butcher's shop in Salins, a small village, and he confessed that he was fascinated by butcher's shops. 
He persuaded me to go in with him to view the hanging meat, and to this day I see evidence in his paintings of hanging carcasses. When Bacon's triptych, Three, figures, three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion, 1944, burst on the scene in the Lefebvre Gallery in April 1945, it caused a sensation. Distended figures, part animal, part human, howl in torment. As Richard Hamilton recalled, such images had never before been seen in paint. And as he said, when he saw them first, he said, what the hell are these? And it, this painting, this triptych, does indicate the direction and the concerns that Bacon was to follow for, in his art for the next 40 years. Painting 1946 and figure with meat 1954, which is in this exhibition, are also terrifyingly original in their iconography, with a single figure overshadowed by a backdrop of sides of meat. There and there is an insistence on man as meat. The iconic figure of the Pope in the right hand uh, painting is clearly identified by his papal vestments, but shockingly he's flanked by sides of meat which replace the sumptuous draperies and traditional Christian iconography. The old, over, old order is overturned. The Pope is not in control. He screams out of the painting, but who is the victim and who is the butcher? Bacon's strong sense of nihilism and empathy with man as animal is reinforced by his portrait of 1952, photographed by John Deacon for Vogue magazine. Stripped to the waist, he identifies with the carcasses, not as a butcher or as victim, but as an alternative living flesh and bone. Meat is the body, the state of the living organism constructed on an armature of bone. The sides of beets split to reveal the ribs, echo Bacon's own ribcage, and are reminiscent of Cimabue's crucifixion, a copy of which he was found in Bacon's studio. Images of atrocities, corpses and meat carcasses were also recovered from Bacon's studio, including a series of photographs of scarred corpses taken by Peter Beard in San Quentin State Prison in 1972, and a most unusual colour photograph of a severed head of a bull upside down on a plinth by John Deacon, the image of which I will show you later and it bears a strong resemblance to the right-hand panel of Triptych 1987, which is also in this exhibition. As Gilles Deleuze points out, in Bacon's paintings, in place of formal correspondences, there is a zone of indiscernibility or undecidability between man and animal. What Bacon brings is an empathy to the state of being where meat is flesh, we are all meat, and the crucified flesh of the butcher shop evokes in him an empathy for the slaughter of the living organism, be it animal or man. As I mentioned earlier, one of the earliest cookbooks owned by Bacon is an edition of Mrs. Beaton's Household Cook Management from, 19, from 1888. Mrs. Isabella Mary Beaton was an indefatigable household advisor and cook. Much used and falling apart, this book was obviously one of Bacon's favourites. However, his domestic arrangements would hardly account for an interest in a labour-intensive and old-fashioned cooking. He had, rather one, he had one rather primitive gas oven, which you saw in the kitchen, and as his kitchen doubled as his bathroom, where, as well as bathing, he applied his makeup before going out on the town, it was hardly the pace of experimental cuisine. So what interested Bacon so much in Mrs. Beaton? Looking through the images... I was struck at how beautiful the illustrations are. 
detailed diagrams of cuts of meat which contributed significantly to his memory bank of images. Two coloured images of elaborate table settings on patterned carpets were torn out and folded within the book. While neither of these relate to the carpets directly in Bacon's paintings, they possibly provide a catalyst for the designs which appeared in works such as Man and Child, 1963, as well as Untitled, Seated Figure on a Dappled Carpet, 1966. Almost finished, this painting illuminates Bacon's painting processes in the 1960s. A single centrally positioned figure is seated on a dais on a patterned carpet. Bacon leaves until last the painting of the panel behind the figure, which pushes it into high relief against the, relief against the hazy pinkish blue background. He used to say that these background panels pinned down or nailed the image to the surface of the painting. And this is one of the six unfinished, seven actually, unfinished paintings that we found by the Hule, which we found, the Hulain team found, in the studio in 1998. And it was tucked behind a group of stretched canvases, uh, these canvases that Tony has referenced already, which were at the back of the studio behind the easel. In her recipe, uh, in her chapter for recipes for cooking mutton and lamb, the detailed illustration at the top uh, of the top of the forequarter of lamb looks remarkably similar to the heads of the strange creatures which appear in the left panel of Three Studies for a Crucifixion, 1962. First aid was part of household management in the 19th century and Mrs. Beaton devotes a chapter to the doctor. Under simple methods of bandaging, the a detailed illustration of the hand bandage with a shaded forearm suggests as if it was the inspiration for the raised hand in chimpanzee 1955. And I'm particularly referencing this one here. And the images of the bandaged leg fractures have echoes in the splints on the fractured limbs in the central panel of crucifixion 1965. The armature or bone structure on which the flesh is hung was a constant fascination for Bacon. Several of his paintings reveal the internal structures of the body alongside exteriors of distorted flesh which are disconcertingly recognisable. Imagery totally posed, poised between human and animal. Bacon suffered from severe asthma from a young age, and this may have awakened his keen interest in medicine and medical illustrations. His sister, Ianthe, recounted to me how Francis suffered terribly from asthma, and the smell of stramonium pervaded the house when he had his attacks. But she, looking back on it, she said she really felt for her brother, because when he had a severe attack of uh, asthma, uh, his parents would put him into a feather bed, with a feather duvet and a feather pillow, not realising that they're probably killing uh, the young Bacon, who thought he was probably going to absolutely smother or drown, as, as asthma is terrifying. In his later years, he wrote to his Irish friend, the artist Louis Le Broquet, apologising for having to leave his exhibition early on account of an asthma attack. And he wrote that his lungs were pulverised by asthma. Bacon kept x-rays of his spine and lungs in his studio, and images from his paintings suggest some association with these reports. 
Three Figures and a Portrait 1975, also in this exhibition, shows a curved spine protruding from the chest of the upturned figure to the left of the painting, uh, 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 the portrait of George Dyer. Now, this is possibly influenced by a spinal x-ray of which Bacon had some in his studio. However, I noticed that a loose page found in the artist's studio shows a beef carcass hanging in a refrigerated truck with an identical spinal structure exposed. Now, uh, there it is there. You see this here? And then this one here. And this was found in the studio up here, just again near the mirror end. Um, it is clearly marked as having been uh, situated at the centre of the studio, and John um, Deacon's colour photograph of the severed bull's head is located down here. And if you can see that, I'm sorry, it's such a small image. And it is located beside um, uh, a leaf from Birds of the World by Paul Barrell. And Peter Beard's photograph of the... Um, Corpses in San Quentin Prison is to the right there, and it, Theodora Fitzgibbon's book with love is just was situated is located here. This uh, shows uh, two um, illustrations of Asian me uh, an Asian family uh, sharing a meal here, and this was also located down here. The visual references to food, which occur periodically in Bacon's over, have often been inspired by images from decades earlier. In 1985, he contributed to cookbook Pantre au Fourneau, edited by Nadine Hein, the sister of the gallerist in, his gallerist in Paris, Claude Bernard. His painting, Morceau de Boeuf, 1978, appropriately enough, accompanies his recipe of steak and kidney pie. However, the, oh, just a minute, uh, the socket in this Morceau de Boeuf uh, is more reminiscent of a crustacean than of a side of beef. And there is a marked uh, compositional similarity with the photograph of lobsters in Lobster à la Parisienne, uh, illustrated in La Russe's Gastronomique from 1961 that was given to him by his lover, Peter Lacey, for Christmas. This particular page was marked by Bacon by this little piece of torn paper. And having looked at this for some time, I also noticed that there was a remarkable similarity to this... Um, Eumenides or Fury to the right of this uh, painting, um, Figure in Movement, 1976. As Tony has ref mentioned, George Dyer, having died in 1971, um, the, that decade saw Bacon repeatedly paint George Dyer with these furies, which is, of course comes from Iskele's, um tragedy, the Oristia, the Restia. And um, those are the furies are represented of, uh, were sent to hunt down Agmenon, who had murdered his mother. And so the references here can be read as certain guilt. Um, Bacon was tired of George Dyer. George did not want to be left out. Big retrospective in Paris. He had, uh, was the subject of some of Bacon's most finest paintings. And of course, then afterwards, the huge guilt when George Dar uh, committed suicide.
despite his modest um, cooking arrangements, as we've seen earlier, Bacon kept on receiving gifts of cookery books, suggesting an enduring interest in cookery. This, one of the most curious books received by Bacon was Venus in the Kitchen. And you see the inscription here, Happy Birthday, Francis, Love from Simon, October 28, 1989. It was edited by Norman Douglas with an introduction, an introduction by Graham Greene. And the recipes are quite extraordinary and what are what we would more associate with Mrs. Beaton's time and pre-war cuisine than that of the 1950s. It came about, as the author explains, after a succulent dinner with several bottles of red wine, some of the guests began to lament their declining vigour. Someone suggested that there must be certain dishes whose ingredients and spices would be likely to revive the fading ardours of middle age. The reader must be left to prove their aphrodisiacal value by personal experiment. Although there's no evidence that Bacon tried any of these recipes, you very often with Bacon see paint accretions on the, on the books, on the pages that he used, or the torn out little markers that I've shown you. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be very many accretions on this book. However, it, there is no doubt he would have been amused by some of the recipes. For example, a pie of bull's testicles, or a skink, a reptile aphrodisiac, the ingredients for which we are told can best be found in Africa or Arabia. However, having looked at this, and, and, and without any pun, one of the diptych study for a human body, 1982, uh, which was pinned to his kitchen wall, is, as you can see, the lower uh, part of the, hum of the male body. And could this be suggestive of the realization of fading ardors of an old age and recalling a life that was sexually very active, as Bacon was? In his interviews uh, with um, Francis Bacon, Melvin Bragg in 1985 um, uh, ends up in Mario's restaurant, one of Francis Bacon's restaurants, and it really becomes quite hilarious. And Melvin gets very drunk and Francis gets very expansive. But this is a still from that um, uh, interview, which is, is a marvelous from London Weekend Television. And in this uh, still, I was going to bring a clip, but I decided it may not work. But he's, he, in this part of the interview, Bacon discusses the beauty of the butcher shop and of the meat carcasses. In 1990, just two years before he died, Chateau Mouton Rothschild paid tribute to Francis Bacon's work by inviting him to design their label for that year's vintage. Appropriately enough, the phantasmical creature here has a rather large cup of wine in his hand. As well as illuminating the life of Francis Bacon, a century of changing tastes, attitudes, and ways of life are documented between the cover of these cookery books. Francis Bacon's enjoyment of good food most probably saved him from an early death. From a young age, he suffered from hypertension and severe asthma attacks. And according to his doctor, Paul, Bra Paul Brass, in a conversation with him recently, he suffered from heart failure in old age, which was also exacerbated by his asthma. Yet it did not ensure, stop him from enjoying a flamboyant lifestyle and taking risks, not only in his art, but in his life. Caroline Blackwood recounts Bacon, then age 40, joining her and Lucy and Freud for dinner at Wheeler's. 
He had just been to the doctor who told him that his heart was in such a bad condition that not one ventricle was functioning. He had rarely seen such a diseased organ and he warned Francis that if he had one more drink or even became excited, it could kill him. Needless to say, Bacon ignored the warnings and ordered a bottle of champagne and several more when that was finished. Blackwood worried that she would never see him again. Bacon's fatalistic approach to life, his love of gambling and his desperate optimism, a trait he said he shared with the Irish, saw him live to the age of 82 and enjoy a reputation of a flamboyant gourmand as well as one of the most famous and successful artists of the 20th century. Thank you. Thank you.